welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome back to another episode. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Brett Gidney about a real hot topic in EP right now and just in general in healthcare, which is the Medicare cuts that are happening to multiple EP ablation procedures. Now, now, Dr. Gidney is an electrophysiologist who practices really kind of throughout the Central Coast, uh, Santa Barbara, Santa Maria, uh, Thousand Oaks. He recently joined the staff at UCLA. Um, He is a zealot for AFib treatment, complex AFib treatment. He's really a world-renowned electrophysiologist, super active on social media, and has really taken up you know, the, the torch and has a passion for trying to do whatever we can to fight these CMS, um, slashes really, there's really no other word, uh, to the EP, uh, professional code reimbursement. So we get into this real kind of emotional hot topic, of uh, CMS Medicare cuts right now. We cover a lot of the details, what people can do to help. Um, kind of a just a, such a high energy conversation with Dr. Gidney. I thank him so much for coming on the podcast. Had a great conversation with him, super motivated after it and inspired. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Brett Gidney about the recent EP ablation and related Medicare cuts. All right. Well, everyone, welcome back to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. On the podcast today, I'm super excited to be speaking with Dr. Brett Gidney. As many of you know, he's a a super busy electrophysiologist here in California, up and down the coast, mainly in Santa Barbara. And he's been a real advocate for other EPs across the country. And so, Brett, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. This is my first podcast experience, so I'm pretty excited. <laughs> and I'm a little jealous of your fancy microphone. And, and that's pretty cool. All right. Very cool. Thanks for being on. And just to kind of cut to the chase, I've seen you on Twitter. I've seen you on Discord. A lot of people are talking about what's going on with these Medicare cuts. So let's just dive right into it. What the heck? I mean, last year, You guys had Medicare cuts. It's happening again, it seems like. So let's kind of backtrack a little bit. Give us the background of where these cuts are coming from. What was it like last year? What's going on with all this? So the background is that there is a concept in government and healthcare legislation that requires what they refer to as budget neutrality. So if the cost of one thing goes up, the cost of another thing has to go down to compensate for it. And it's a unique concept to healthcare and to physician payments that doesn't apply to 
the hospital system. So the hospital systems can get their yearly increase to maintain pace with inflation and increasing cost of goods inflation. But physicians don't get that same thing. And in fact, we're subject to regular decreases or at least neutrality so that there's no increase. So de facto decreases as a result of inflation when it's normal inflation and when inflation's horrible like it is now, it's it's even more severe. So that happened really for the first time in quite a long time in at the beginning of this this year. So 2021, the AFib ablation was worth 26.44 RVUs. And then as January 1st of this year, that value went down to 19.77 RVUs. And they did that with bundling of various services. So they said, well, you're doing 3D mapping for every one of your AFib ablations. So we're, we're taking that out. You can't bill for that anymore. That's just going to be built into the AFib code. And you're doing intracardiac echocardiography for virtually every one of these. So we're going to build that into it. And so they bundled all these sort of separate items into a single code with a reduced total RVU amount. So that was step one. And their reasoning for doing that was simply the fact that we were doing all of these things together. And it wasn't to their mind, or at least the way they couched it is, wasn't a cut, but obviously it's a significant cut. And then beginning in January 1st of 2023 in the CMS final rule or the proposed rule, which will be made final before the end of the year, they proposed to cut that 19.77 down to 15.8. And that's an actual cut. So what they so the original cut was what they call bundling. And then now what they're planning on doing is reducing the number of RVUs we get paid as a result of utilization. So they're saying, well, okay, AFib ablation is being done more and more and more, and we can't allow you to get paid more for that. So since the volume of AFib doubled, we have to decrease the amount you get paid for it to compensate for that extra cost to us. So overall, just to nail it down, you're looking at a, over the course of two years, a 40% reduction in payments for atrial fibrillation. And the way they value that is on time. So they say, look, this is purely based on the amount of time it takes you to do these things. The law and the way this is written is they're supposed to take into account intensity, risk, all of these other factors. It's based on, they've stopped doing that. It's too difficult for them. And it's just now based on time. And they're saying, you're doing this fast enough now, you get this cut. But obviously there's much more to it than just the time factor. And the amount of time it takes to do an ablation varies from patient to patient. So I can't say, okay, it's going to take me three hours to do an AFib ablation on these three patients. So I can squeeze in all three patients in the same day. I have to say, well, what if this one takes me five hours and maybe one will take me a little bit less, but it's not fair to the other patients if I calculate it based on that. So, and then you have to take into account the fact that we're trying to deal with this increasing volume. So I can't just do my one ablation in the morning and then go to my office. There's no way I can accommodate this massive volume 
of atrial fibrillation ablation need with that sort of philosophy. So I have to dedicate a whole day to doing it and try and be as efficient as possible in that day. And CMS has no way to account for that. They don't take into account room turnover and all of the other factors that go into arranging an entire day. And a day isn't, as you know, we're all doctors, right? A day isn't your, you know, nine to five. You're talking about getting to the hospital at 6 a.m. pre-op and then, you know, not leaving until eight or nine o'clock at night sometimes. So this presents a huge problem because you've got something like 6 million people in the United States with atrial fibrillation and 1,500 electrophysiologists, practicing electrophysiologists in the U.S., which means that right now, less than 1% of patients who need access to ablation actually get it. So we're already at this point where we're in a, in a tiny specialty in dire need of more people doing this and improved access. And we need incentive to get people to take all that extra training, do that extra year of fellowship. So this is three years of cardiology, but then two years of electrophysiology. And then for a lot of people, they've got to go into a practice where they can get more volume in their first practice to develop these skills. I mean, you you know that as a surgeon better than anyone. You don't come out of your training instantly able to do this. So the training doesn't stop at the end of your training. You're still dedicating time and effort to getting better at this before you can really deliver the services that our patients need. And now we're disincentivizing people to go into this field where we really, really need more help. Wow. I mean, that's a ton of information. So I'm going to kind of summarize that a little bit for the listener. So these Medicare cuts, have been they're kind of in two iterations right now, right? The first iteration happened in 2021. And the big picture concept, it sounds like, was essentially you were getting so good at your job, you were doing it with less fluoro, better mapping techniques better catheter. So it was taking, generally speaking, shorter to do an AF ablation. So then the government comes by and says, well, hey, if it takes you shorter, I'm going to pay you less, right? And this is all within this giant umbrella of cost neutrality, right? That that you said earlier. Okay. So here we're in this environment where the government's already decided, okay, we're going to pay you less because you're essentially getting more efficient at doing these procedures. And not only are we only going to not pay the doctors less, but we're not going to affect the hospital side. So for those listeners, this is strictly aimed at the provider, right? This is strictly aimed at the EP interventionist who's doing these procedures. And you kind of said it quickly, but I want to make sure the listener really grasps what we're talking about. So you threw out some numbers, 2021, 26.44 RVUs, that dropped down to 19.77. That already was a 25% drop year to year. And now with the proposed cut again to 15.8, you're talking about a 40% reduction from 2021 to 2023. Never happened before. That's unreal. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. It's, it's, it's penalizing us for doing good work. And the worst part, I'd say, I'd say the worst part about it for us as electrophysiologists is for a long time we really struggled to prove that what we were doing resulted in meaningful outcomes. And so over the last couple of years, we've started to generate that data and show that the quality now is at the point where we're reducing hospitalizations, we're reducing costs to the healthcare system, 
We're not, and, and quality of life is important, right? You talk to your patients on a day-to-day basis in the clinic, quality of life, they want that. And the healthcare system as a whole, it matters to them. At clinicians, it matters maybe the most, but the healthcare system, it's not as concerned with the quality of life. But now we're showing reduced mortality, reduced heart failure hospitalizations, reduced onset of dementia. So we're saving the system money, enormous amounts of it, and utilization of the ER when ERs are stressed more than they've ever been stressed. We're showing that we're doing all of these things. We're reducing ICD shocks with VT ablation. Outcomes are better than ever with VT ablation where, you know, nothing else does that where you can jump in and say, okay, five minutes ago, you were dying, having ice storm, shock after shock after shock. Your mortality rate was 50%. And now you're going to walk out of the hospital tomorrow, a new person and fine. We're showing these things. And right when we're at the peak where we're showing these amazing outcomes, we're get we're getting our legs cut out from under us. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up VT because it seems like I mean it doesn't none of the codes are completely resistant to these cuts, but it does seem like VT is the least affected. Why do you think that is? I mean, I'm looking at year from 2021 to 2023, there's about a 15% drop in VT reimbursement. Why do you think they didn't they weren't as aggressive with VT? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, T ablation is much lower volume. So we talked about the fact that AFib is more and more common. It's it's more of a healthcare concern. Well, ding that the most. There's less VT ablation done. But VT ablation already took a significant impact in the past. So already there had been some bundling of those services into VT. So I think it's multifactorial there, but you know, it's still significantly impacted. The fact that we're, we have to look at this in a world where we've got 9% inflation and say a 14.4% reduction is a good thing <laughs> is, is horrific. Yeah. And, and it's a disservice to those because gosh, the heroes of our field are those, those electrophysiologists who go in and are willing to spend eight hours doing a VT ablation. The fact that it had already undergone cuts, the fact that it was valued at the same thing, at the same level as these other ablations is, is wrong already and shows you how it doesn't take into account the intensity of what we're doing and the risk involved because those patients are so sick. They really are on the cusp of dying. When we take patients in who are having VT storm we're taking patients who have the sickest ventricles, who are at risk of having pulseless electrical activity, despite the fact that they're in normal rhythm, just because we induced, we, we gave them anesthesia. We're already walking this very, very fine line in order to save their lives. And, and we're spending inordinate amounts of time. It's the most unpredictable procedure. You just don't know what you're going to get in there. And those of us who are going in there and spending an entire day doing this one procedure are really disincentivized from, from doing that. Yeah. So tell me, what is it like at the ground level, like boots on the ground? Has this or what happened already, has this affected how you go about choosing which cases you do, how much time you spend in the OR? Or I mean, at the end of the day, you got to treat the patient, you're going to spend the time. I mean, has it, has it changed your clinical practice or, or others, other colleagues? What are, you, what, what are you hearing from around the field? It's so hard where we're ethically, obviously obligated to do these things, but we also unfortunately have to think about the impacts to our, our employees and our practices and our ability to support our practice. And how much time am I really allowed to allocate for myself to be in the EP lab 
where it's more beneficial to be in the office from a financial standpoint where I can meet my other obligations. So right now with the way this is set up, it will be more or the same RVUs to read three echocardiograms as doing an AFib ablation. So how is it possible that someone can sit in the office, look at a digital screen and read three echocardiograms and say that is the same intensity, takes the same level of training as going in and doing one of these incredibly complex procedures? And that's not to not to say reading an echocardiogram is easy. I mean, it is a complex skill set. It takes a long time to be very good at it, but it's just it makes no sense to a person who walks in and watches someone read an echocardiogram and then watches someone do an AFib or VT ablation to equate those two. It's nonsense. Absolutely. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's crazy that three echoes equals one EP procedure in the lab that's going to take you hours. And, and yeah, it's not to say that reading an echo is not a big deal and doesn't take skill. That's not what we're talking about. But can you get into who's making these decisions? I mean, are, are they physicians? Are they number crunchers? Are there data people at the government? Do you have any sense on like where the math behind this is coming and where the, the thought behind it is? I mean, is this truly just bottom line sort of stuff? Or are, are there physicians who actually are advocating for these cuts? It's a thorny topic because our self-governance has failed in many ways. We've committed to creating these groups within the AMA, the American Medical Association, this group called the RUC. And the RUC, its job is to evaluate the cost of what we do and make sure it's appropriately valued. And the RUC is a group of physicians that come from many different specialties and evaluate these codes and are forced to use these unusual means of equating one service to another. So this started with a RUC survey that was sent to electrophysiologists asking them to equate what they do to other codes. And you hope that electrophysiologists understand the importance of this, but they're sent this survey, they're told it's important, so they go through it. And I got one of those surveys, so I can tell you what it was like. I was given an ablation code, and then I was given a list on the other side of other codes and said, what do you think this code is most equivalent to? So already there is bias because someone had chosen a list of codes that were supposed to be crosswalkable, supposed to be equivalent, but these were peripheral intervention codes that I'm not familiar with, that I would never do, that I don't really understand. And I was supposed to pick one. And this gets sent to a couple hundred electrophysiologists. They fill it out. And then that's the number. That's what you all the whole entire profession gets paid nationwide. And this is promulgated, unfortunately, by our own professional societies and through we need payment reform. And this is obviously already broken at a deeper level. But but that was a big part of it. And then on top of that, historically, CMS accepted whatever the RUC told it was the appropriate reimbursement or RVU level for a particular service. And in this circumstance, the CMS comments were really odd in the sense that they were given the RUC recommendations and then CMS wrote a massive document, thousands of pages. And it says that they heard the RUC recommendations, but they disagree and arbitrarily came up with new numbers. And so they completely disregarded the process, which is already problematic and already devalued these services. 
and just went ahead. And what seems like when you read the comments, arbitrarily reduced the amount we're being paid for these services even further. So it seems wrong that we were cut this year and it was already egregious. And then we're being cut more by what the RUC is recommending, which is probably already too much. And then CMS comes along and reduces it even further. So again, it as a practicing electrophysiologist in the trenches, I'm not an academic electrophysiologist. I like academics and I want to publish and contribute to research, but I am in there every day doing procedures, very, very busy. And it's, it seems punitive. It does. I'm going to throw something out there at you that you may, you may cringe at, but I just, I want to get your vibe on this. So you may know that surgical ablation techniques have seen an increase in reimbursement. Yes. And I wonder if this is at all a response to that, or is the surgical ablation volume so much less than electrophysiology volume that it's really comparing apples to oranges and maybe it's not even related to this topic at all? What are your thoughts on that? I would suppose that they're so disparate the connection between them clinically isn't necessarily really the connection between them on a, at a legislative level or at, at the level of CMS. I, I don't think that there's that same connection between them. So I don't think they're necessarily related. And I think the volume of surgical ablation is such that it's, it's a lot lower on, on their radar. Gotcha. Do you think this is at all related to the general cost of the procedure. Again, that would that would infer that this is all under this greater umbrella and maybe because it costs more to do them, whether it's with ice or with all the new catheters, everything that's coming out, right? We're always evolving. Stuff tends to be more expensive as we evolve. Do you think that this is a, a reaction to that at all? I mean, you could look at it in the in that way that the costs of professional services are easier to devalue versus the tangible costs of items that need to be purchased from pharmaceutical companies and industry and sort of that medical industrial complex that needs to keep chugging along. So that complex continues to get fed because of the rising cost of goods, whereas it's much easier to tackle the physicians. Physicians don't have a lobby. There's the American Hospital Association, which is a very powerful lobby. Industry has its own ability to lobby very powerfully, right? Big companies. We're unable to do that. It's very difficult to to get a physician lobby that has much in the way of power and, and is persuasive and has any leverage. So yeah, I think the rising costs of the procedure are being met by CMS and they are paying hospitals more and more to keep up. And there's no reason that physicians shouldn't at the very least maintain par with inflation, but healthcare reform, payment reform just hasn't taken place. And therefore we're just been separately. So the hospitals are able to generate more and more profit. And he is a big part of that. I mean, we feed cardiovascular services in many, many institutions. We're, we're what keep things going. And unfortunately, I think the amount we get paid is just not considered in that. It seems that 
physicians in general tend to be kind of this vulnerable group. And what I mean by that is there's always this underlying assumption in society that we are altruistic at our core. And the reason I bring this up is because when you mention a physician lobbying group, it almost seems counter to what we stand for, right? Like how dare we in air quotes, how dare we form a lobbying group to go and talk to the government about compensation issues, right? Because there's this there's this underlying thought that, hey, physicians should be altruistic. They should, you know, we're here for the patients. Finances really shouldn't be an issue, so on and so forth. And I feel like there comes a point where the government kind of takes advantage of that. Like we are easy targets, right? And just like you said, because we haven't traditionally had a lobby, or presence, I should say more. I mean, we have our AHA, we have our HRS, we have our STS, we have our society groups that go to the government and help us for sure. But do you think this is going to be the spark that kind of unites more physicians to create more of a presence, more of a a lobby impact? I mean, I know that's come up in some of the the dialogues online. So as physicians that compete with one another in individual groups, we aren't legally allowed to create a lobby because when competitors come together and or a union and when competitors come together and decide what the value of their services should be, that becomes that's price setting. That's sort of going, I don't know what the legal term is, but we're, we're going towards a moving towards monopoly and price setting. And uh, we're not allowed to do that. But if a group of non-competing physicians with similar interests, such as employed physicians come together, such as resident unions, that's allowed. So employed physicians can come together to, to bargain, whereas independent practitioners in private practice historically have not been allowed to do that. However, we are allowed to perform, or we are allowed to form professional associations, which are 501c6s. So that's different from a 501c3, which is a, that's not for profit that donations to are tax deductible. And 501c3s like Heart Rhythm Society have very strict controls over what they can do with their money and limits up to, you know, depending on what they're doing or depending on what their yearly budget is, 20% of their money can be put towards lobbying efforts, which is a very limited amount of it. Whereas a 501c6 donations to that aren't tax deductible. But that is That association is specifically allowed to use all of its money if it wants for lobbying efforts and to help promote or fight specific legislation. So, so we have ways of banding together to promote our interests. So that's historically how we've, we've achieved our ends through advocacy. We haven't done it very well through grassroots efforts because it's difficult to get physicians to communicate and to work together to promote a common cause with communication means. But we have that available now through things like Discord, where we can quickly get the word out and quickly mobilize a group to write letters and to call Congress and to let people know what our needs are. And associations help with that sort of a thing through their own communication channels. But lobbying with tools like striking has not been something we've been able to do and would probably be very frowned upon by state medical boards, et cetera, as unethical. But one could imagine taking a week off or a day off to call attention to an issue through grassroots means that 
that sort of effort is possible, but you know, something we don't want to have to resort to. And it's sad that we have to even think about it. I mean, obviously we should be valued more than that. And the current system is making it so it's hard to even run our own practices and and continue to provide these services. And that's what it comes down to. We're not arguing to be paid more for our incomes. We're talking about being enabled to recruit people to a specialty to provide services in places that need it most. And these are concentrated in large metropolitan areas, tertiary care centers, near tertiary facilities. So you've got fewer than 5% of electrophysiologists who are actually out there in communities working to provide these services in underserved communities, rural areas. And by making it hard to to run a practice and EP practices are complex with the need for device monitoring and with the need for additional personnel to maintain follow-up with these patients, highly complex patients that have enormous needs leading up to and after procedures. You know what that's like as a surgical subspecialty. So our practices aren't practices of a doctor in a silo doing this. I mean, we need ancillary support. We need nurse practitioners. We need nurses. We need medical assistants. We need administrators. We have a lot of a lot of sort of bureaucratic responsibilities in terms of making sure that we meet MIPS and we have all these other other things that we're beholden to from as professionals that it's not simple to maintain these practices. So obviously this isn't 100% of the, the money we make isn't just going into that physician's bank account. We're we're really using it to support our practices and to support our patients and to make sure that we were able to continue to do this on a daily basis and devote the amount of time necessary to these procedures because there's a dire need for them. And at this point, that's in question. And I think these cuts really will limit patient access to a procedure that is is needed more than ever. You talk to people who have had AFib and struggled with it and who have not been able to function in their day-to-day existence and didn't even realize electrophysiology existed because of where they lived and their access to it and finally get to an electrophysiologist and realize this, this horrible weight, their inability to breathe and go up a flight of stairs and engage in the physical activity that they were used to engaging in and the, their decrease in quality of life. It's all curable. We can, we can reverse all of that and to deny patients access to that is, is a tragedy. And it seems like it's going to, or maybe it already has, you can speak to this, disproportionately affecting those patients who have more complex AFib, maybe the longstanding persistence that you're going to spend more time in the lab with. I mean, it just seems like those efforts, which are more heroic, more intense, are the ones that are being penalized even more. I mean, it just it seems crazy that that would be almost like I'm going to tell the oncologist that if they treat stage four disease, I'm going to pay them less than if they stay, if they treat stage one disease. Right. It kind of feels like the same thing. Like the more work, the more complex, the more time, this is going to impact that even more. So I think what we'll see, and I don't think this is overnight because no one wants it to happen. I don't want it to happen. I want to keep doing ablations at the same level I am now with the same intensity. I can imagine a move towards more medical management because I have no choice, because I can't afford to do ablation to at the same volume I was. And that's going to result in more hospitalization. And, and I think it's going to, I think it's going to deter electrophysiologists from doing ablation and doing 
the complex ablation they need to and patients who otherwise might have been candidates for persistent AFib, but we know that's, we're told it's supposed to take us this amount of time, but we know it's going to potentially take this much more. And we just, we can't commit to that. So you've got patients who are going to get denied access to procedures because we ha- we're being forced to think about the economics of it rather than being able to just provide the care we want to be able to provide. Yeah. Do you think this is at all, I mean, maybe this is a twisted way of looking at it, but do you think this is at all a backlash to the more recent data that supports ablation, early intervention for early AFib as opposed to medical management? We've had recently study after study that basically debunk a firm, right? right? For so long, it was medical management, amiocumidin, amiocumidin. And now we have more and more studies that are speaking to intervention first, whether it's cryo or whether it's RF. Or Do you think at all there's this underlying backlash to the data that's coming out that's saying intervention is superior to medical management in select patients? I do. I think, I think it's probably indirect. I, I really hope and try not to think about the conspiracy level, (laughs) that concept that this is somehow reactionary directly to that. I think, I hope it's indirectly, you know, a response to that. But yeah, I, I think that early ablation is problematic for Medicare and it's because of the way, or for CMS and, and Medicare, therefore, I think it's because of the way they think about it. It's, it's the root of the problem is that they can't see beyond the immediate cost of the procedure. So they don't have a way to value. We, in our literature, we have a way to value these things, right? We can see the value of procedures. We do it all the time, but they don't have a way with reimbursement to understand the long-term implications to the healthcare system. It's just extremely short-sighted. So they're just looking at what's the cost of this AFib ablation, not, okay, well, that patient instead is going to be on amiodarone. So now they're going to end up seeing an endocrinologist for their thyroid issues, and they're going to have to get their PFTs, and they're going to have to get their chest x-rays, and they're going to have to get their TSHs, and they're going to deal with amiotoxicity, but then they're going to get readmitted with their atrial fibrillation. You've just, you've added so much more cost to the system. And we know now antiarrhythmic drugs are not without complications. We think we know now it's not procedure, only procedures that have complications. As we look at the data on antiarrhythmic drugs, they're associated with complications and hospitalizations and outcomes that are very expensive that ultimately are what justify us doing the procedure. We know it's the right thing to do, but the, and that's, it's a bigger fight. And we don't, we can't fight the fight right now that needs to be fought, which is really, we need payment reform. We need the system to understand those of us that are doing quality work that are helping to defray the costs long term. That's what the system needs the most. And it just can't see that. Another thing that's really interesting is when you talk about kind of long term impact and kind of the financial consequences of that, when you look at managing the left atrial appendage, we all think of stroke with that, right? We say, okay, we manage the left atrial appendage because we want to we want to prevent the devastating stroke. And we think that we probably have reasonable data that speaks to if you manage the left atrial appendage and you prevent stroke, you probably have death rate as well, right? Patients live longer if they don't have strokes from their AFib. Reason I bring that up is because what you notice with these cuts is that they don't affect left atrial appendage management, whether endocardial or epicardially, but we're not talking about epicardial devices right now. But I almost wonder if because CMS can see the direct effect of stroke reduction 
with left atrial management, left atrial appendage management, that there would be less of an emphasis to apply these same sorts of cuts in the future on endocardial left atrial appendage management devices, as opposed to AFib, where just like you mentioned, maybe they don't necessarily understand the nuance of dementia prevention, heart failure prevention, and all the downstream issues with it's hard to imagine that their sights aren't set on left atrial appendage closure. It's, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but in terms of volume, you have a procedure that is just going to grow exponentially. I think that we're going to have data that shows it's not simply non-inferior to DOAX, that I think we're going to have data showing it's the better way to go long-term. When you look at long-term bleeding rates, the, the graphs are very concerning with anticoagulants, even with DOAX. So I think the day is coming where this procedure, left atrial appendage closure, is going to grow exponentially, and it, it's going to get cut. I think the you're looking at patients that are going home sooner from it and the complications are very low. We're getting very good at it. Again, the crazy part about left atrial appendage closure is it is very high risk and it is a difficult procedure to do. And it's it's done in a relatively short period of time, but the complexity, the intensity, it's one of the most intense procedures I do and time doesn't possibly do it justice. So it's, it's unfortunate, but I can't imagine that that is not one of the pieces of low-hanging fruit for CMS. It's already relatively poorly reimbursed, and I think that's disincentivized some physicians from learning the skill set and building the program. And that's another part of it. For those of us that want to do it well, that want to be a left atrial appendage occlusion center of excellence, whether it's recognized or indirectly, we have, we have to really gather so many resources. So at our hospital, we don't just have the required registry and the dedicated study coordinator that we've got nurse who calls the a separate nurse who calls the patients the day before and calls the patients the day after. We've got so many calls from the office going out to these patients, making sure they understand the anticoagulation regimen, that they get scheduled for their 45-day TEE, that they schedule for their one-year TEE, that they understand the implications of these medication adjustments and need to adhere to them. So the procedure is much more complex than the time it takes to do the procedure itself. And again, one of those things that just I don't think is properly taken into account. I want to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier about, if I heard you correctly, maybe about 5% of EPs are in a private group or a private practice. So the data element is it's less than 5% of electrophysiologists are currently providing services to underserved populations. So we've got electrophysiologists that are really, really highly concentrated in certain urban areas and certain parts of urban, suburban communities. But the underserved, at-risk patient populations that have certainly a high need for these services or don't have access to them. So we have a, a, certainly plenty of electrophysiologists that remain in, in private practice, but I don't have that number. But in terms of this particular issue, the concern is you've already got at-risk patients, patients in need of these services who don't have access. And I think that access is going to decrease as a result of, of these cuts. Understood. 
And is it is it correct for me to say that if this isn't because there's a, a lack of interest or desire from EPs? It's not like there's apathy from the academic EPs who are saying, hey, this doesn't this doesn't affect me because I'm in an academic institution. I'm going to make X, Y, you know, Z salary, regardless of how much RVU production I create. I mean, it doesn't, I can't imagine that's the issue, right? I mean, this is something that EPs are passionate about and they're, they're trying to change. I can imagine some individuals and academic institutions who feel insulated from this, but I can assure them that the university and their department looks at the partial contribution of their specialty to its bottom line. And RVUs may seem abstract, but they translate directly to dollar values. And when the department is no longer contributing that dollar value, ultimately, the reimbursement to those physicians who feel insulated will go down because Someone will make an adjustment in a contract, even if it's not directly RVU productivity incentivized. But those physicians who are incentivized by RVUs, certainly they're going to see a direct, nearly immediate decrease in their value to to the university. Is it fair to say that the most popular intervention EPs perform is AFib work? Yeah, so that's the most commonly performed ablation right now. Absolutely. Okay. So what can the listeners do? What, what, how can they help? How, how can the, the people who are listening to this podcast get involved? Are there certain websites, emails, phone calls? Are there places you can direct them over this podcast to get involved to help, to help the efforts? So I think that there's a couple of important avenues that can be taken. One is every single individual in the United States is represented by a couple senators, and there is a representative in Congress in the legislature for their district. And those members of Congress are accessible. You can go on their website and you can you type in your zip code to prove that you're in their district, and then you can write a note to them and tell them that this is important to you and that this is going to limit your access, your family's access to care, You can tell them the impact that ablation has had on your quality of life and that it's made a difference for you and what a tragedy it is to deny access to that service uh, to other patients who will will potentially need to continue to suffer with atrial fibrillation for longer or maybe find that it's just not accessible at all to them. So contacting Congress is, you feel small, but you have a representative and you aren't small and your voice matters. And you all you need to do is look up who your congressperson is and send them a note or call them and let them know how important this issue is to you. Writing a letter is fine if you feel so inclined. I think it's, it seems a little foreign to us in the electronic world to to do that. So websites and, and writing a note through the website is probably going to be very effective. And we are going to be creating a new 501c6 called the EP Advocacy Foundation. The EP Advocacy Foundation is being formed as we speak, where all of the donations to it will be put towards advocating for electrophysiology. We should have eadvocacy.org up and running soon. And that will be a place where financial contributions can make a difference. So I don't know of another way to to help whether 
whether there's other means of, of getting to the to the crux of the issue other than really because this is a legislative issue. And so I, I think the best thing to do is just to, to reach out to the legislature. Gotcha. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, if, but if, if one of our listeners want to reach out to you, what, what is the best way to reach out to you to possibly get some more information? Well, is there, is there a clinic number or is there... Yeah. So I, I have a Twitter handle. I'm pretty, pretty active on Twitter. So at Brett Gidney. So that's, that's definitely a good way to, uh, to get in touch with me. I post a fair amount on there and I'm checking it probably way too often. Definitely, <laughs> I, I annoy my wife and my kids with how often I, I check it. It's the first thing I do. I roll over at like 5 a.m. and I, it's now it's so instinctive and I'm like, What's on Twitter? <laughs> we have this new Discord server for healthcare providers. So certainly, if you're a healthcare provider and you're in the EP space, that that's great. We want more healthcare providers. We want more MDs, DOs, nurse practitioners, practice managers, healthcare professionals in the EP space on the Discord server. It's it's a great way to to remain a tight-knit community, get the messages directly and quickly. It's a lot of fun to have created this thing. I'm going to click on it right now and just, uh, let's see. We've got, as of now, in just a couple of weeks, we have 412 electrophysiologists who have joined. So for a specialty that only has about 1,500 of us in the U.S. doing this, that is a, a good number in a short period of time that I think we're pretty proud of, of having gotten together. And, and there's a lot of communications happening there. It's just nonstop. So it's a, it's a lot of fun to feel like we're a part of a community. So Discord, you'd think it would be just for gaming, but it turns <laughs> out it's got some more, more to it than that. Well, look, I'm definitely going to walk away from this conversation with, with a couple kind of real highlights. Number one, this is not about physician reimbursement as much as, as it is about the bigger picture which is if you don't value a service that's being provided in our healthcare system, which is the treatment of AFib by electrophysiologists with an intervention, ablation, namely, that service is going to be under a constraint. And it's just crazy that given that it's the most common arrhythmia in the country, in the world, that we're not doing things to buttress, to support the practice of interventional EP in that, like you said, if these sorts of cuts continue to happen, there's going to be an issue with access to AFib treatment for patients. And it's only getting worse, right? We know that AFib is going to double by 2050. That might be around 20 million patients in the U.S. with AFib. And with maneuvers like this from the government, unfortunately, that could lead to less access, like you said. And overall, a less healthy population with increased risks of dementia, increased risks of heart failure, and probably still increased risks of stroke. So I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. This is an absolutely enlightening conversation. I think our listeners are going to get a ton out of this. And thanks for sharing all the information where, where they can reach out and make a difference, whether it's directly to you at your Twitter feed at Brett Gidney, or whether it's reaching out to their congressman or woman through the Senate or through email website, like you had mentioned. So thanks so much for coming on. And I'll, I'll give the, the last few minutes here to you to kind of speak to anything else you want to get across to our listeners today. Well, first, thank you. This is, this is really cool. It is fun to talk about this. It's sad. It's a tough topic. It's very emotionally charged because it's not just the monetary value as a 
as an EP that feels like, I mean, I feel like I've dedicated my life to this specialty and this profession. I love it. I'm very, very passionate about it. If I won that billion dollar lottery a couple of weeks ago, (laughs) I would still, I'd still be doing what I do every day, waking up when I wake up and working the hard hours. I love what I do. And it, it's just a, it's a punch to the gut. It feels like I'm being undervalued, not financially, but as a, as a professional. And, and that's kind of where it hurts most emotionally and that it's going to affect my patients and my, my profession nationally is, is just, it's really disheartening. And it's, it's just really cool though, to get these thoughts out and to sort of, to go through it with you. And it helps me kind of get it together and understand more what the issues are and gets me more energized about fighting for my profession and my society and, and for my, for my patients. So uh, it's very cool to be on here and really a pleasure. So I would say that in terms of just just final thoughts, I would really encourage you to, to feel like you have a voice if you're a listener here and use your voice and be loud. And you know, it's issues like this that let us coalesce as a community and make us somehow stronger. And I feel like my physician EP community is so much stronger now than it was just a month ago as a result of this. So I think we'll be more prepared to battle these things going forward and to work with other other specialties that get injured by this sort of thinking by the government and just or lack of thinking going forward. So I, I hope that this fight that we're really deep in right now really helps to serve other professionals who find themselves in the same situation going forward. Awesome. Well, definitely part of a bigger cause as well. The EP issue at hand might be kind of the microcosm of a bigger kind of macro picture that we're facing in healthcare. So Dr. Gidney, thanks so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Cool. All right. Take care. Have a good night. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com. And check out our Twitter feed at All Things AFib. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.